Hi, I'm Iris Muller. I'm a certified rehabilitation counselor and a proud mom of two children, one of whom has quadriplegic cerebral palsy and is nonverbal. And I'm Alma Schneider, a licensed clinical social worker and the proud mom of four children, one of whom has Prader-Willi syndrome. In this podcast, we discuss the uncensored truth about raising kids with disabilities. Prepare to laugh, cry, and hopefully learn something new. This is Two Moms No Fluff. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Two Moms No Fluff, where we talk about all things related to parenting children with disabilities. And I'm Alma Schneider. And as you can see, I am not here with my partner, Iris, today. I am here with a friend from my community named Maria Linietsky. And I'm going to let Maria introduce herself to you to tell you a little bit about who she is. So um, I am really honored to be on this episode of Two Moms, No Fluff. And um, so my name is Maria Linietsky. I'm 19 years old. I'm finishing up a a gap year and going to Sarah Lawrence College next year. I'm interested in studying theater psychology and graphic design. And um, I, um, I was asked to um, guest host on this episode after uh, reciting a poem I had written about my experience being autistic at my town's um, local disability pride parade. The second, the second annual. Second annual, yes. And uh, and well, I wanted Maria, uh, Maria. I wanted you to come on because um, we were so blown away by your poem um, that I saw the last time I checked. I think some your one of your parents or somebody posted it on Facebook. The recording of it. And the last time I checked, it got over 5,000 views. And I don't even, I can't even imagine what it is now. Do you have any idea? I really don't know. But my dad has told me that a lot of his, uh, a lot of his colleagues who have autistic kids, who are often autistic teenagers, say that it really resonated with them and it especially resonated with their kids. Mm -hmm. I love hearing, I just love knowing that I can create stuff that resonates with other neurodivergent youth, because I really wish I could have had something like that as a, as a young teen growing up in a world surrounded by neurotypical dominated pop culture. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you even wrote a song about it that I am yes. a fan of that uh, maybe we can play at another time on yes. Two Moms No Fluff where I can send a link to it because it is such a great song and it showed me the really creative way that you are able to deal with your with your neurodiversity. So uh, it's sort of um, that song was about um, fallacies that I fell into when I was trying to make friends earlier in high school, mm-hmm. back when I didn't really understand that. Um, back when I didn't really understand that friendships were more about appreciating each other's personalities rather than trying to break through several layers of gatekeeping by memorizing cultural content. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's profound. It's profound that that was what was going through your mind. And it was, I, it seemed like, I don't know if this is accurate, but the song talks about, it sounded like a lot of pressures that you, to fit in when that's not what friendship is. You should, no one should feel pressures to fit in. It should be about the people like you just said. Yeah, at the time, I 
I don't know. I take a very intellectualized approach to everything. And as someone who jokingly considers themselves to be something of a former gifted burnout, I've always found that coming across as smart and erudite and well-informed has been my way to getting social approval. Mm -hmm. So I often saw, um, I'm sure a lot of other autistic youth can, uh, can empathize with this. We often see um, cultural content as sort of um, social currency. Like if we know enough about, like if I would meet someone, mm -hmm. I would, if I was in a friend group that I was kind of intimidated by, intimidated by, but I wanted to enter, I would just sit silently on the edge of the group, um, like very carefully observing all the stuff they referenced, um, their books, their movies, their slang, their music. And then I would go home and research it furiously and then so I would have something to talk to with them. And then I realized that partially that was a result of me hanging out with um, friends who had a propensity for gatekeeping. And part of that was me being a bit paranoid about being gatekept myself. Mm -hmm. um, these days, I'm trying to meet more people who have interests that are a lot different than mine. Mm -hmm. um, I, um, I recently started dating someone whose interests are very different than mine. Oh. We're always like telling each other about all the stuff we're passionate about. And they're also autistic and they can definitely empathize with the whole cultural content as social currency thing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I feel like I'm getting into a bit of a tangent here? No, this is absolutely relevant. And I think that the people who listen to the podcast, I, I'm really hoping that they have their kids listen to this because this is, you know, you are speaking from the heart and the mind of someone who is experiencing this. You know, I don't experience it. My partner doesn't experience this um, because we don't have autism. We want you to, I mean, this is exactly what, you know, we're hoping to talk about. Something that, um, I'm curious about that I'm hoping you can speak to is when did the change come and um, to feel more open about discussing your autism? Did, did it happen gradually? Did something happen that made you kind of open up and feel more comfortable sharing or what was it? Well, my parents have always been very open with me about my neurotype. I am one of the very, very lucky uh, female or assigned female at birth people to be diagnosed at age five because when I was a kid I I did a lot of the very stereotypical autistic um, diagnosis criteria things like I would stim constantly I uh, read at a very advanced level I had uh, very, sometimes very glaring social difficulties. I would engage in echolalia all the time where I would like repeat some of my favorite phrases from songs or TV. Mm -hmm. And um, the reason why not that many, not that many women or assigned female at birth people are uh, diagnosed with autism, the reason why it's considered to be a boy's neurotype, the reason why Autism Speaks' logo used to be blue, um, it's true, I never thought of it. Was, 
the diagnosis and why light it up blue exists. Yeah. Autism speaks is absolutely terrible, but that's an issue for another time. Yeah. Um, is because uh, autistic traits tend to manifest differently mm -hmm. in um, girls and women. We're often um, we're often more adept at something called masking, mm -hmm. which is um, essentially method acting being a neuro being a neurotypical. Mm -hmm. It's um, you do a ton of research on how neurotypicals act you sort of build up a social vocabulary and then when you go into social situations you sort of put on this persona that's like the ideal neurotypical passing version of yourself and it can be exhausting it feels sometimes like being on a being on a very intimidating first date all day, being at a job interview all day, doing improv comedy with a team that you don't have very much chemistry with all day. That's a great customer service work all day. Yeah. And it can get really exhausting. Mm -hmm. And um, I know I'm getting a little off track. This is sort of how my speech patterns work. I'm like the guy from Vsauce. I hit on one topic and then just expand <laughs> on it. Expand on it. They're all relevant. They're all yeah. relevant. So, so my parents have always been open with me about my neurotype, which I have greatly, greatly appreciated. Um, I know some, I remember I had a, a friend in a, in elementary school mm -hmm. who, um, he was, he was like, he was clearly autistic. Autistic people often have sort of like a kind of a, you know how gay people have gaydar? We can just sort of sense each other's vibes and find other neurodivergent people in the wild. Mm -hmm. I remember he was, he was a really nice kid, very, um, very geeky. He was super into uh, hockey and vexillology, the study of flags. Mm -hmm. And he had some of the same social difficulties I did, but he always had very low self-esteem. Mm -hmm. And I was talking to my parents about, about him about two years ago. And they told me, your friend's parents um, didn't tell him he was autistic as a kid, he actually essentially self-diagnosed, went to his parents, asked them if he was autistic, and mm -hmm. they told him that they had been keeping the diagnosis a secret from him. And for and what reason, do you know? This is a very common experience. A lot of people, a lot of parents make the mistake of keeping their kid's neurotype a secret from them, so they won't feel like they're disability is limiting. Mm -hmm. I consider autism to be a disability under the social model of disability, but that's, a, you know, you know about the social model of disability, right? I, I know a little bit about it, but if you can explain it, that would be helpful. The social model of disability is, um, it's a little bit hard to explain. Um, it's, I just like to think of it as a lot of us who use a social model of disability describe ourselves as disabled mm -hmm. rather than with a disability. Because if you're disabled, then someone or something disabled you. 
Right. Sometimes so, it's yeah. an example of ableism that the yeah, sometimes, society is not allowing you to. Yeah, sometimes it's uh, sometimes it's an illness or an injury or a condition, but most of the reason why disabled people can't do as much as they they want to or need to and can't live and have uh, face obstacles towards uh, living fulfilling and safe and comfortable and happy lives mm -hmm. is because they live in an inaccessible society right like imagine being a super super dedicated super curious student mm -hmm. who goes to uh, who uses a wheelchair and goes to a college that's on a very hilly terrain and doesn't have ramps and the the, the dining halls uh, serve primarily food that you're allergic to mm -hmm. and the and the dorms uh, and the dorms don't have very good heating or I'm just thinking there are all of these physical things around us that I don't know I'm getting a little bit off track but I think that uh, if I may I think that what you're saying is that there are there are not things put in place by society to make it inclusive or welcoming to everyone who has who differences and it's simply that I mean that's the social model of disability is if someone is affected by ableism mm -hmm. generally the disability community is people who are directly affected by ableism um, even if you consider your disability to even if you consider your disability to be something empowering about you mm -hmm. which i know a lot of autistic people do believe it doesn't change the fact that society wasn't built for you so going back to the going back to the the etymology of disabled it's a passive voice thing you are the object on which something is some something is acting on you mm -hmm. um, a lot of disabilities come from just society not being built for us mm -hmm and i remember i saw this video with the um disability activist um sonora taylor mm -hmm. and she was talking about how she has um she has a disability where um, her joints are fused so she can't really she can't really use her hands but she's a painter and she um, paints with a paintbrush in her mouth and she says that she always wishes that she could go to coffee shops without getting weird stares because for her it's easier to carry her coffee cup to her table while holding it in her mouth and then like leaning down to put it on the table mm -hmm. and getting a straw the only thing keeping her from feeling comfortable in coffee shops her local coffee coffee her local um, cafe had a ramp um is i'm sure there's a lot of other stuff that was keeping her from feeling totally comfortable but she stopped going to coffee shops because when she tried to carry the cup in her mouth 
mm-hmm. and people would stare at her weirdly. It's it's not that she couldn't go to the coffee shop. Right. It's that the way she chose to, the way she navigated it was not normalized by society. Right. And so it's not really a disability, quote unquote. It's that it is perceived or it is felt as a disability because the world around people with disabilities is not including them. And there's also a lot of the the disabled experience is you're constantly butting heads with systemic oppression. Mm -hmm. You're, if you're, um, for instance, if you're, um, if you're deaf, then there's, there are things you, um, there are things you can't do. You, you can't hear, Mm -hmm. but if your deafness is, but if you're, I'm sorry, there are, if your deafness is keeping you from having a job, Mm -hmm. like there's an entirely different systemic oppression factor. Yes. Taking an impairment, not being able to hear, Mm-hmm. and turning it into something larger, like not being able to get a job, yeah. not being able to feel comfortable in your school, not being able to uh, understand safety instructions very clearly, not being able to attend field trips, not being able to um, not being able to find that many friends in mainstream situations. And do you have suggestions? Sorry, sorry to interrupt. Do you feel is there something, at least in your upbringing or just in your travels, in you know researching autism and and learning about it? Do you have any ideas about what can be done in schools, for example, or in communities to make um, to make it more comfortable for individuals with with neurodiversity? Is there anything that comes up? Like, definitely question, the but. model of multiple intelligences. Mm-hmm. Because, well, I don't know. Before I get to that, I just want to talk about making schools a more sensory safe place. Mm. When I was a kid, school was sort of sensory hell, honestly. they We had fluorescent lights that would that would flash on and off at several hundred cycles second, but I could see them flash on and off and I could hear them constantly buzzing, like drilling into the back of my head at all, all hours of the day. I remember the bell was like this incredibly loud grating sound that would just sort of make my hair stand on end and like my teeth seize up every time I heard it. I remember I had trouble seeing the, I had trouble seeing the contrast on the blackboard. And I remember hearing all of the overlapping voices in the classroom would really distract me and distress me. And often in gym class, I I couldn't understand the rules. And during recess, people would try to avoid me. And sometimes I, wish that I have a pair of um, ear defenders, which are like, which are like large earmuffs. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I wish I could have been allowed to wear ear defenders in school. I was um, often told to sit still 
when I, I thought better if I was just sort of fidgeting around. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that's I feel like just a little bit. I think that there are more allowances for that kind of stuff that you're talking about. Cause you're how old now? Are you 19? 19. Yeah. yeah. I know that they're allowing like some fidgety things. So there's maybe been a little progress with there, but what you're saying about the bells, I mean, that's pretty significant to have to tend, you know, to, to deal with that when it's so stressful and just listening to you, I can't imagine that those are not things that can be dealt with that they're, you know, it's very, it's very practical. And schools are just like little microcosms mm-hmm. of sort of how in, in a, how an inaccessible world works. Mm-hmm. Like if you, if you walk into a classroom, you can just think about, you can just sort of quantify all the people who wouldn't feel comfortable and wouldn't be able to learn properly there. If the, if the projector is too dim, um, then people with uh, people with um, vision impairments mm-hmm. won't be able to understand as much if the if the class goes if the class is at the on the top floor of a building and the elevators in the building were, are always out of order then it's inaccessible to students who use wheelchairs or other mobility devices or to students who have chronic fatigue there's a lot of a lot of examples uh, what you're describing yeah. i'm sure there are a million more um i want to be conscious of time because i want to make sure you oh. get your incredible poem um so that everyone can hear it but you had mentioned something to me before we started recording about how your favorite guitarist a picture of it gave you yes. confidence can you just talk mm-hmm. a few minutes about that about okay. what made you feel comfortable owning the autism and sharing it and feeling comfortable yeah. about being who you are. Yeah, sometimes I, I wish I had more time so I could talk about how autism is both a it's, a, it's a disability to me and it's like a, it can be a very joyful, vibrant facet of who I am, and it can be like an identity touchstone mm-hmm. uh, that I use to connect with other people. Mm-hmm. Um, so I remember I first really started getting into um, autistic self-advocacy when I was writing my uh, when I was writing my college essay, and I was writing about how my process of annotating materials and finding as many cultural connections between um, texts and finding influences and references and allegories and all sorts of stuff was my a way I got joy out of um, academics mm-hmm. and <laughs> I just I don't know I remember when I was uh, when I was about like 17 I found out about this guitarist named Rory Gallagher. He was an Irish guitarist. He was pretty much as popular in Ireland as say Jimi Hendrix was in the United States. He was known as like a virtuosic player, mm-hmm. sort of a man of the people songwriter. He was sort of like an early career Bruce Springsteen sort of. Mm-hmm. And he had this cult following. And the more I researched about him, the more I researched him, the more I realized that he seemed like he was autistic. He had 
an incredibly keen sense of hearing. He could hear a clock ticking from a, a hotel room three miles away. A lot of his friends said that he was shy, but he would really open up when, you, when people talked about things that he was interested in, like drawing or detective novels, or, or of course, like roots rock and blues music. Okay. And he had um, some social issues, and he often talked about how his senses seemed too keen and how he would turn to alcohol hmm. to help him feel, to help him sort of filter out all of the excess stimuli. Mm -hmm. But he was, he was a, out of all of the musicians I have ever listened to or read about, mm -hmm. he, he seemed to get so much joy out of his music. Music was his life. It was like his constant companion. He was engaged in a constant dialogue with it. Mm -hmm. And I thought, I sort of thought of him as kind of an icon of autistic power. Yeah, it sounds it's, like it. It's this oh, man of the people guitar virtuoso filling stadiums all over Ireland and helping people connect during the troubles and all sorts of stuff like that. So what I did was, I don't know, I was doing these series of musician portraits based on the, based on a uh, style of this uh, Spanish graphic designer, Ricardo Cavolo, who does symbolic tattooed images of uh, musicians. So this is Nitsky and has a bunch of hidden references to her career and her works. This is Janis Joplin. Wow. And- um, Wait, you did these? Yeah, I did. Wow. Yeah, I was for like very, 17. For those of you who don't know Maria, she is an incredible fashion designer, seamstress, uh, artist, musician, a songwriter, I mean, poet, j just you really do. I'm, I think I'm your biggest fan, and I'm not kidding. I'm not trying to be patronized. Like, I am so impressed with everything you do. So, and that is such a style that I, I recognize from other things that you've done that I've seen. Just incredible. So, what I did was I decided to draw a picture of Rory Gallagher. Uh -huh. And this is his iconic, battered, um, tobacco sunburst uh fender stratocaster mm -hmm. and this is his iconic flannel shirt and if anyone here is familiar with rory gallagher you'll you'll see that there's a ton of references but you can see on his forehead there's the neurodiversity symbol superimposed over a guitar pick wow and Very i chose cool. to do that i chose to draw that because playing the guitar was his special interest and his neurotype was a huge contributor to how, how much of an influence he was. He influenced Brian May, he influenced the Smiths, he influenced wow. all sorts of people and just how much joy he got out of his music. So I, but before I figured out about the, I actually, found out about the neurodiversity symbol in the process of drawing it. I was originally going to draw it as a puzzle piece because as a kid growing up with neurotypical parents, I was surrounded by like puzzle piece imagery. My parents aren't really like stereotypical autism parents, but I was exposed to a lot of flawed media. Well, that was all there was for so yeah. long. So I looked up, I was, um, looking up the history of the autism puzzle piece and I found out that it was considered controversial and belittling and infantilizing mm -hmm. and 
I wrote a whole essay about that, but, uh, but that's a story for another time. And I found out about the alternative, the neurodiversity symbol, which was created by the actually autistic uh, research psychologist, Judy Singer, who coined the term neurodiversity. And the infinity shape is supposed to represent the, um, it's supposed to uh, represent the infinite diversity of the autistic community and like the sort of light spectrum hmm. is supposed to represent the spectrum and our our vibrancy and our color and our joy so i just thought it ended up looking kind of cool like a celtic knot almost it does. It does. and for those of you who are just listening go and watch on youtube and i'll post some on our instagram and facebook some of the if if maria if it's okay oh. for you to send some of your your drawings and that drawing in particular sure. Um, well, I'm a little worried about, about time, but I, you know what I think we're going to do, Maria? I think, I think we should do a part two. Are you okay with a part two? Cause I Definitely. really want you to read your poem. Um, and, uh, I want to hear a little bit more from you because I'm learning quite a bit myself about, about a lot of things and I, I want more. I want more. I think that there's I, a lot more to talk about. And I, I really appreciate you, you coming on today. There's a lot, I've, you know, I've watched you cause I live in, you know, the same town as you. And I just, I'm really, I feel like you are such an asset to the autism community and you're giving people a lot mm -hmm. of hope who didn't, who didn't know that you could be proud of being autistic. And there are a lot of, I deal with a lot of parents and I think it's really important them to hear your voice and it will give them hope for their children because I think that you're absolutely right we live in a flawed society that gives a lot of false and misleading information about autism and we need to hear from people who are actually living it to hear that this is actually not true about me and this is you know there's a lot more to me than this label and I think it's I think you're really providing a lot for a lot of people so I thank you for that and I'm sure you know, people are going to be really excited to listen to this. I think it's going to, it's very meaty. You're giving me a very meaty episode. Um, all right. Well, I think, I thank you for coming on today. And I would like to, um, to set up a part two. And I'm, I'm leaving people as sure. like a cliffhanger because I really um, want to hear your problem. We want to talk about um, the importance of telling your kids that they're yeah. autistic so they can, so they don't end up, um, so they don't end up um, attributing the things they have difficulty with to personality flaws or exactly. other people being mean to them. And I want to talk about how self-diagnosis is totally valid. I want to talk about why I use the word autistic rather than with autism. Okay. I want to sort of dispel the. This could be a good part too. <laughs> I want to dispel the myth that autism is a limiting label. Mm -hmm. I want to talk about how it can be an identity, mm -hmm. how it sort of like a queer identity, how it often intersects with queer identities. Yeah. And I want to talk about the theory of double empathy, one of my favorite things about, uh, about autism research and all the great friends that I've made at Sarah Lawrence. Oh, that's great. All right, well, we are gonna be here. I think this is gonna be one of our best, if not our best episode. And uh, all right, thank well, you. thank you so much for coming on. And uh, thank
thank you everyone for tuning in to Two Moms No Fluff, and we will see you next time. Bye-bye. Thank you. For more information, please go to www.twomomsnofluff.com. Thank you. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and give it a five-star rating so more people can hear it. Thank you.